0: Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time.
1: Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Welcome to One Hour at a Time, everyone. Um, I'm Mary Woods. I'm your host today and I hope you all are having a wonderful, sunny Monday. Um, We have a really great topic for our discussion today and it's around spirituality and our guest today is Dr. Ingrid Matthew, who holds a master's in transpersonal psychology and a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Um, She has been working with um, people who have substance dependence and substance use disorders since 2004. She maintains a private practice in Beverly Hills, California, and she writes a blog for Psychology Today called Emotional Sobriety. Um, one of the important things we're going to talk about today is is trying to define, in essence, what spirituality is. And a concept that she writes in her book, um, Recovering Spirituality, Achieving Emotional Sobriety in Your Spiritual Practice, And this concept is called spiritual bypass, which is pretty fascinating, and um, the more I read about it, the more I could identify with it. So um, I would like to introduce all of you to Dr. Uh, Ingrid Matthew, and welcome, Dr. Matthew. I'm really excited to have you on the show
3: today. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, I think, um, you know, in going through your book, uh, there's some great concepts, but one of the things I... I would like to begin to just talk about is is can you just define spirituality and how you perceive it because it's such a nebulous um,
3: topic boy and it's it's a big question uh, you know I actually start the book by saying that uh, you know people can insert their own definition of of spirituality when reading my topic of spiritual bypass because I think spirituality is such a, a personal experience. Uh, for some people, it's religious. For some people, it's not religious. For some people, it's a belief system. For others, it's it's uh, practices like yoga, meditation. Um, so I, I think it's such a broad um, topic that it's difficult to define really succinctly. Um, so... I don't know that I can do it any any better than anybody else. Um, I'm I'm more interested in how we as human beings approach our spiritual practice than I am well-versed in being able to define the essence of spirituality.
2: Well, I think um, we all kind of know when we we aren't feeling spiritual because I think most of us feel kind of empty inside. Mm -hmm. We may feel alone or um, without purpose. I think, I think that it's important to understand that spirituality is, is something that's immensely personal Mm -hmm. and that there's no, as you, as you said, there's no right or wrong answer for, for what it is. But that it's, it's something that, like everything else, requires balance in our life. Mm -hmm. And, um, and as you had mentioned that, um, whether we get that through yoga, philosophy, religion, or, um, Self-help groups. It's Mm -hmm. it's important to understand that that it's part of a balance. That this concept of spiritual bypass is when we use our spirituality to kind of avoid what's right in front of us, or the expectation that if I'm spiritual, then bad things won't happen to me.
3: That's right. That's right. Yeah. In essence, I think you know you make a good point. That I know when I'm not feeling spiritual, and it's it's sort of a loneliness and. I think spirituality is about connection, you know, whether it's even to other people or, you know, to God, a higher power, it, the essence is connection. And then, you know, of course the flip side of that would be disconnection, which I think inadvertently happens when we're trying to pursue spiritual practice with this, with this idea of avoiding who we are or transcending who we are. It's about disconnecting from ourselves. So it's this, very fine line between using these ideas and practices that are supposedly supposed to create connection, um, but you know we we do it unconsciously uh, in effort to sort of disconnect from things that are painful because we don't want to feel that stuff. Why, in your opinion, is it important to feel that
2: that pain or that discomfort, or or to to get through the? Um, the stressor or the um, the event
3: that that's so um, troublesome. Well, you know, I, I like the, the saying what we resist persists. And, you know, that is to say that whether I acknowledge something or not, it still lingers there. And, you know, I think oftentimes in, in terms of uncomfortable feelings or you know, depression or anxiety, that stuff manifests in other ways that It seeks expression whether we want to notice it or not. And so if I can bring my attention to it and notice that I'm feeling bad, I can take care of myself, you know. Um, Awareness brings choices. So I may not like that I'm feeling this way, but once I recognize it, I can say, oh, you know what, I'm having a hard time. You know, maybe I need to talk with someone about it. Maybe I need to, you know, bring a little compassion to my process or whatever someone's tools are. And when we don't do that, you know, it's sort of the symptom will manifest in other ways. We can become lethargic, you know, clinical depression, um, stomach aches and headaches, you know, all of these things. I I think sometimes the root cause is not tuning into ourselves, not checking in and and seeing how am I feeling and, and, and how can I honor whatever it is. Yeah, I,
2: I think that that's so important. One of the things that I, I thought about when I was reading your book was I grew up Irish Catholic and mm. a very um, a very clear sense of what was a sin and what isn't a sin and what's right, right and what's wrong. And that always striving to um, to not sin. And, and when you sin, you feel bad. So I, I think early in my life, I connected spirituality with being good that's and um, not having sinned yes and um and it never made me feel very good about myself because because like good, most good Catholic girls, I always felt like I was never good enough, you know right and and I think that um and I, and I don't think this is uncommon, but um as I grew through my teens and early twenties, the, the whole idea of spirituality or church or God was like it, it wasn't comfortable, it wasn't soothing, it wasn't
3: um it was like I couldn't even identify with it right you know and i think a lot of people have that that same experience and you know that can make certain practices you know spiritual practices like prayer inaccessible that if i can't bring my full self to the table you know then then how can i connect with god or fear that god is going to see these parts of me that that i know are unworthy um so it it can really it can make it difficult yeah
2: I know, I was I was lucky, um, I had I was in my early twenties and um I had a cousin who was a Catholic priest and my parents were harping on me because I wasn't going to mass and, mm-hmm. and I remember talking to him and he said, You have to find your own path. When it's time for you to go back, you will mm-hmm. you know? And it was like such a relief, you know. Right. It, and so I was able to go home and say, Well father so and so said, you know, and mm-hmm. then that kind of you know, kept them quiet for a while.
3: Right. <laughs> but but
2: the whole the whole idea that you have to find your own spiritual path. I think when you grow up sometimes in like at least for me, growing up in, in a very Catholic environment, it was like um kind of a knee jerk kind of spirituality, you know.
4: Mm-hmm. You, you
2: kinda get fed it and then you you know, what goes in comes out and there's not a lot of thought in between. Right. And um and I think that as we grow In our own lives, whether we're in recovery or we're not in recovery or we're, we're counseling people, Mm -hmm. um, there's always that challenge to, to understand the bigger world and, you know, why, I remember reading, why do bad things happen to good people? And Mm -hmm. that was such a great book, you know, Mm
3: -hmm. because
2: none of us get a hall pass when it comes to life, you know,
3: right?
2: But the expectation is, well, if I'm a good person and I'm, you know, and I'm spiritual, then and that should be
3: my 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 uh, suit of armor against bad things happening. Yeah, and then unfortunately when the bad things happen anyway, you know, you blame yourself for maybe, you know, not doing it right. You know, oh, man, I should have gone to this church or tried this yoga practice or, you know, I had too many negative thoughts. And, you know, I think it's such a shame when people fall into that trap of really blaming themselves for what is just life, you know, that this is just a human condition that... Uh, no matter how much spiritual practice you do, you're really not going to be able to transcend that, at least in my experience.
2: Well, and I, one of the things I liked about your book, too, is that probably the basis of all spirituality is being able to accept yourself.
3: That's right. avoid yourself. That's right.
2: Um, when, when you think about um, accepting oneself, you used a couple um, examples in your book, and maybe you could just share with
3: um our our listeners a little bit about Allison oh sure um, so Allison is a woman that I interviewed for my book um, I interviewed several people in 12-step recovery that had 10 or more years of, of consecutive sobriety and we just you know we had a conversation about their spiritual and psychological development uh, and I was sort of keeping my eye on on this defense mechanism of spiritual bypass to see how it it impacted various people's journeys. And, you know, Allison, when she first got sober, she heard about step three, you know, which is turning her will and her life over to a higher power. But she had some magical thinking about what turning over her life would do for her, and Uh, One of the stories that I offer is, you know, she was on a vacation with her husband and they found this beautiful diamond ring and she wanted the ring. And her personality was such that she would have asked him for it and, you know, laid several hints or, you know, tried to manipulate a little, but she, she wanted to have him buy the ring for her. But then she remembered step three, you know, wait a second, I'm supposed to turn things over, you know, I'm not supposed to be willful and so she got on her knees, and she prayed, and, you know, up to that point, she was following the essence of step three, which is, you know, surrender, and she was taking contrary action. But what she honestly believed is that if I do this, if I take all these actions that my sponsor is telling me to take, then I'll get the ring, <laughs> but I won't have to do it by manipulating or badgering my husband, and when eventually he did buy her the ring, this confirmed her theory that, oh, this is fantastic. You know, it was like um, this wonderful new tool that if she, if she prayed for it and let it go, then she would still get it anyway.
2: And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk a little bit more about the meaning of that um, with right. Dr. Matthew. And if you have any questions or comments, give us a call.
0: For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking.
4: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: A fresh look at today's health, Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back, everyone.
2: Um, this is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Ingrid Matthew, and we're discussing how to achieve emotional sobriety in your spiritual practice. And before we went to break, um, Ingrid was sharing with us about um, an example in a book of a woman named Allison. So could you continue, please?
3: Sure. So I, I was talking about how Allison was using Step 3 uh, with this idea that if she turned things over, she would get what she wanted, um, this sort of magical thinking around her her spiritual practice. And, you know, when, when it did give her what she wanted, she thought it was fantastic. But later on in her sobriety, I think she was eight or nine years sober, and uh, she, she suffered a pretty debilitating depression. And so when the thinking is that if I do the right things, I'll get what I want, she was really uh, in a vulnerable place because, she thought she was doing all the right stuff and she still was depressed. So then she thought, well, now what am I going to do? And she tried to ramp up her spiritual practice and she started to feel almost paralyzed because she felt like she couldn't control her thoughts and that they were manifesting all of this negativity. Um, And eventually she had to come to a place of complete surrender. She had to redefine her idea of spirituality of spiritual practice of her higher power and her relationship to it Um, because you know that's one of the difficulties is that when we think that we can that spiritual practice is just another vehicle for control um, we're going to get in trouble at some point right and we
2: were um, discussing during the break is that you know there's the whole concept of the law of attraction that if you put the the positivity out there mm-hmm. um, and saying that, you know, being able to define what it is you want, mm-hmm. um, you you keep focused on that, but you ultimately don't really have
3: control. That's you know? right. I mean, you know, I'm all for positivity. I'm all for affirmation. You know, I think all of these things, you know, the law of attraction included, it has a place, but... Uh, you know, I often say that nothing is a panacea, you know, nothing is a cure-all. And um, we have to tether whatever we're doing with acceptance for what is. You know, there's this saying that we have to take the action and then let go of the results, that we're not in control of the results. You know, I can set goals and I can have plans and um, I can certainly put lots of energy out there towards whatever it is that I want, but then I have to let go. And that's what Allison was trying to avoid was, you know, letting go means that we're vulnerable. You know, uh, it's a it's a place of surrender, and it can be really scary for people. Um, they, they feel like they can be a victim. If I if I really let go and surrender, I'm going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so the impulse is to go towards things that allow us to feel like we're in control, but the control is illusory. Uh, you know, we don't really have that much control. So how do we practice dipping our toes into vulnerability, uh, you know, just a little bit at a time and um, come to accept whatever is happening as it's happening, as we're still trying to grow and change and, and manifest new things?
2: And it seems to me that in and of itself just defines the difference between spirituality and faith. Say more. Well, I think that um, you know, and this is just me, mm-hmm. but I think spirituality is, um, you know, it, it's it's like a, in, kind of the way I define it, it's mm-hmm. it's something that that's active, and faith is something that um, is certainly faith is, is active, but faith goes to, if I have enough faith, I can let go because I have faith. I have faith that I'm going to be okay. That's right. You know, I don't need, if I have, in my own life, if if, if my faith is where it needs to be, then I can let go of a lot of stuff and know that whatever happens, it's going to be okay. It may not be the way I want it, but at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. Right. And And I think that, um growing up that understanding what faith meant to me I think has almost been more important than understanding spirituality because with faith never alone that's right you know
3: yeah yeah so. it's foundational you know absolutely that that idea that no matter what's going on I'm gonna be okay even you know if it's the exact opposite thing that that I was hoping for Um Oh, you inspired another thought and now it's left me but hopefully it will return.
2: <laughs> well, I think you know, what you you talked about, like, you know, I can I can find a new yoga master, or I can find a new way to do yoga, or I can find a new um spiritual guide and I can keep searching and searching and searching mm-hmm. but without faith I'm just on a it's kind of empty. I'm I'm just on this long continuous search where um you know, I, I haven't really filled up the hole in my soul.
3: That's right. Well, because it perpetuates that idea that I'm still not good enough. Because I'm, oh, maybe the next thing is going to fix it. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, maybe it's the next thing that's going to fix it. Oh, I'm still not okay. And it's this sort of striving, grasping, um, you know, get get my talons in, control-seeking, you know, kind of a approach. And and when I hear you talk about faith, it's much more of a of a resting place. You know, mm-hmm. I can sort of lean back into faith. And and I think those two do have to be balanced. And and I think, you know, where I see w- with some of the interviews that I conducted and uh, in some of my clinical work is that, you know, people can err on one side or the other. You know, it's that, you know, I tend to err on the side of doing. You know, I've always liked the idea that I could find something else that's going to um, be the go-to tool. but. I have to, for me, remember, oh, wait a second, Ingrid. You know, I don't have to relentlessly manage my life, my spiritual path, my psychological development. Um, and, you know, for other people, I, I think the reverse is true, that, you know, they can be so kind of laid back that they're not really engaging in their own life. And, right. um, you know, they could could stand to, to do a little more um, of the work, in quotation
2: marks. Well, and I think sometimes people compartmentalize their spirituality, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know having worked in this profession for a long time, there are people who are, um, quote, unquote, in recovery who, you know, those that practice is for, you know, one hour, three or four times a week when they're in a mutual help group, but it doesn't transcend to their daily life.
3: Yes, I think, you know, emotional sobriety, a lot of, as as I was starting to define that based on the research, you know, it's about integration, that, yes, I'm spiritual, but I I also need to take care of my mental health, and then I have my physical body, and how can I weave those together, Uh, you know, because I think we can all think of a lot of examples of people that perhaps, on one level, they may be very spiritually developed, but also rather emotionally immature, you know. They kind of put all their eggs in one basket, you know, or, or vice versa. And can we step back and and look at the big picture and, and see, okay, how can I bring my spiritual practice or philosophy into the rest of my life, you know, into my emotional well-being, uh, into my psychological development, into my depression, you know, into my recovery from addiction, whatever the case may be. It's about integration.
2: And and once again, I think just going back to acceptance of ourselves for who we are and our own flaws and strengths. That's right. um, That, you know, you don't have to be perfect to be spiritual, and you don't have to always turn the
3: other cheek to be spiritual. That's right. You know, thank thank goodness for that. You know, the last blog that I wrote was called Permission to be Human, you know, because I think none of us really want to suffer and we don't want other people to suffer. So we can start to prescribe, you know, if someone's feeling bad, we can be quick to say, you know, well, have you tried this? Have you done that? And then they can feel like they've caused their own circumstance or they shouldn't be having bad feelings. And I think we need more permission to be human. That I think a lot of the New Age stuff in particular you know, it can. it's like this sort of snake oil that, oh, you know, here's the thing that's going to fix it. And you can feel like you're doing something wrong if you don't feel happy, joyous, and free all the time. But I don't know anyone who feels happy, joyous, and free all the time.
2: And how one-dimensional life would be if we were.
3: Oh, it,
2: eventually, so happy, joyous, and free would be really boring. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know, I think I think one of the things too is that um you know, we're we're not always comfortable talking about those other kinds of emotions. I remember early on um uh when I first got out of nursing school and friends of ours had a baby who had died of sids wow. and we were at this um party and with a group of people and everybody was talking and this was like this couple's first entree into the life after their their daughter had died and And everybody was kind of like talking and avoiding, you know, just being very uncomfortable not talking about the fact that their daughter had died. And I can remember sitting on the couch and saying to her, you know, I'm really sorry about your daughter. What was Katie like? And like a half hour later, she, you know, she told me all about her and everything. And she said, thank you so much for asking because I need to talk about her. She's still a part of my life. And everybody is avoiding her. And I can't yeah that that's almost as hard as losing her. It's like losing her twice, and that was oh, such a good lesson for me that oh. you know, um people need to talk about things that make us sometimes uncomfortable that you know um we don't heal by keeping everything inside.
3: That's right, that's right, yeah, it goes back to your earlier question why why would we wanna pay attention to this stuff? Well, because that's how it heals, you know. You you, you you have to sort of clean the wound before it can heal over properly, you know you can't just throw a bunch of stuff on it and hope that it's going to get better without any attention right 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 yeah
2: and, and to own it you that's know. right because it's uh-huh. real
3: yeah mhm yeah um
2: when when you're thinking about um emotional sobriety which is a which is a really unique concept in and of itself, what calls to your mind? Mean, how would you define emotional sobriety?
3: Well, a lot of things come to mind. Uh, you know, a lot of it is what we've, we've been talking about, which is, I think, tolerating all of your feelings. And emotional sobriety is about not running or chasing the thing that's going to make that go away, but just being really present to it. Um, you know, sometimes when I, when I speak of emotional sobriety with people, I'll ask them to, to do a minute of meditation and see what comes up, and that can be a good barometer about can I stay with what's happening or am I going to run to my grocery list? Am I going to, you know, how else do I check out? And, of course, we all check out, but can we check back in? Can we bring ourselves back to the present?
2: And we'll be right back after this commercial with uh, more of our discussion on achieving emotional sobriety in your spiritual practice.
1: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network.
4: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family Center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
0: Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network.
2: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Ingrid Matthew, who is talking to us about her new book, Recovering Spirituality: Achieving Emotional Sobriety in Your Spiritual Practice. Um, One of the fascinating things in your book, Ingrid, was um, you you devoted a considerable amount of time talking about the development of the Twelve Steps of AA and Bill Wilson's um, role in that, and I think for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with um, the 12 steps they're uh the foundation founding principles of um, a way of life for people who participate in alcoholics anonymous and they were based on um, a number of of things the oxford group which was a spiritual movement in the early 19 um, 20th century early 1900s mm-hmm. and um, also the workings of Carl Jung and um beliefs that um, bill had kind of garnered from sister Ignatius and and other folks along the way as well and um, and I think that it's been my experience in working in the addiction profession for a long time that that in many respects Bill Wilson and dr. Bob are put on the pedestal mm-hmm. and um, and kind of like not really idolized but um Almost enshrined by what they created, and I think people sometimes forget how human they both were.
3: That's right. Well, that you know, it became sort of this fascinating uh, discovery as I went from looking at my research participants' stories around their long-term sobriety and and how they you know have experienced spiritual bypass. I thought, well, let me go back and look at the founders' experiences, and um, I've included. You know, I, I call it Bill's story revisited. is the chapter in the book, <clears throat> but it talks about you know how first of all Bill was a businessman, and so he knew that part of getting AA off the ground was that he had to be the face of this this movement, and in doing so, you know, he had to put his best foot forward. He he had to portray you know this recovered alcoholic and. It's not that it was not authentic. I mean, he he did recover from alcoholism. He did found this incredible program that has helped millions of people all over the world. But, um, you know, there are other sides to the story. And in essence, Bill remained a human being. You know, he stayed sober for the rest of his life. Um, But, you know, he had a lot of his own, you know, what the program calls defects of character that... Uh, you know, he had until the day that he died. And I think the importance of bringing that up is to remind other people today that they, too, get to stay human, you know. there's And people can say it sort of casually, like there's no finish line and we only have one day at a time. But But to really think about those things, there really is no finish line, no matter how much time you have in recovery, no matter how many fourth-step inventories you've done, or how many people you sponsor. You know, y- y- you're still human, and as was Bill.
2: Well, and I think the other, thing, the other message in this is that we never really arrive. I used to think that when I was 21 that I would, I w- I, that would be the pinnacle. I would know everything. Right. I, I would be somehow, I don't know, um, ordained as uh, an adult. And then I and then I was like it was like home free from there. And I, I got to be twenty one and I thought, Well, this isn't gonna happen. So I thought, right. Well maybe when I'm twenty five and then when I'm thirty, well by the time I was thirty I kinda figured out this is a lifelong process and I'm never
3: gonna get to where this magical place is I think I should be. And, and people do that with sobriety, you know, oh but maybe when I have five years. Okay, maybe when I have ten years and you know, people with thirty plus years are still saying the same thing.
2: Yeah. Well I think the other really nice thing about um your Bill's story revisited is at Westbridge we work with folks that have co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. And, you know, um, we're lucky in New Hampshire that um, our folks are are very welcomed into the 12-step community. But, you know, for a long time early on in in my career, you know, people with mental illness, you know, that wasn't really accepted, I mean, in a 12-step meeting. And the fact that Bill Wilson suffered so terribly from depression and, you know, was just um, tortured by it, that I think that if that was publicized more, there would be a greater understanding and tolerance in the halls for for people who have co-occurring disorders.
3: Well, you know, that's part of my hope in bringing more of those facts to light. Um, you know, and and he, it was really courageous of Bill at the time, even though it may not have been highly publicized, within his his group of peers, you know, who had also gotten sober, for him to go seek outside help, you know, to seek a therapist, to seek some of the supplements, you know, that, that he was trying at the time. Um, you know, he was criticized for that. There were a lot of people that who felt like if Bill was working a better program, uh, he wouldn't have suffered from depression. And, you know, so... Right from the beginning of, of AA, herein lies this idea that if I do it right, then, then I'm going to be okay, and it's, it's just not true. Right.
2: Would that be a spiritual bypass? That's right, absolutely.
3: You know, which it, it, I think that we can probably only sort of self-diagnose our own spiritual bypass, but the truth is when you also look at the rest of Bill's story, he was constantly seeking that white light experience. He wanted to experience it again. Um, He had the profound spiritual awakening, you know, which led to the founding of the program. But, you know, long after that, he was doing the LSD trials and he's breaking out the Ouija board and doing seances and um, trying to commune with spirits. And he was constantly seeking out the next thing, which, you know, on one hand, it's the reason that he's the co-founder because he has that... Um, you know, that passion, that drive to to figure this thing out, you know, what's the next thing that's that's going to work, and so it's incredibly useful in that way, um but of course, the flip side of that is, can he be okay without the constant seeking out of the next thing that we can't live in the white light experience all the time?
2: It's kind of like looking for the next high or the next drug
3: exactly, it really is and i and I think that's why you know i found it so compelling to tie this the research of spiritual bypass into the recovering community because you know it is a population of people that are already prone to look for the the next high the next thing that's that's going to make me feel good and spiritual practice is included in that
2: um you also mentioned in your book about narcissism and how that relates to spirituality could you talk a little bit about that
3: Sure. You know, I mean, I think um, even in the in recovery approved literature, the Big Book and the Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, um, narcissism is is talked about in in terms of the self centeredness. Um, you know, the idea that uh, the world revolves around me, and and you know, people will often say in meetings, um, uh, you know, I'm a what do they say? I'm I, Narcissistic because I can't stop thinking of myself, but all I can think of are horrible things. I, I still have low self-esteem. You know, it's that that crazy, crazy paradox. And um, but it's but a the idea program. that I'm sorry. They always say it's a selfish program. Oh, that's true too. Right, right. So so you know, just I, I think that a lot of the research bears out that you know pe- addicts and and alcoholics tend to have higher levels of narcissism than say the average person who doesn't have addiction and that that narcissism is about only being able to see things it's sort of like your lens for the world is such that everything needs to come back and, and, and serve you in, in this sort of positive way. Uh, and um, I'm sorry, the, the phone is having a little bit of interference. I don't know if you can hear it, but... Yeah. Um, so, in essence, someone comes into the program with this lens of sort of self-seeking, and then you give them a spiritual program that says, this is what's going to lead you out of your addiction and into sobriety, but they're still self-seeking, that that doesn't go away. And so people can sort of start to work the program alcoholically, that you know the ism and alcoholism starts to color the way in which someone sees these spiritual principles. If that makes you
2: sense. Al- you also mentioned about the promises and how that can be kind of a. If, if you if you think that that recovery is one dimensional and that all these promises will be fulfilled without any type of struggle, that's also a
3: spiritual bypass, right? It is, and, and, you know, to your point about Bill Wilson, this idea that, you know, he can sort of be idolized, I think the, the text, the big book and the 1212, they, they can sort of be canonized in this way that people think, well, it says right there in black and white, you know, it says right there, the promises will always materialize if we work for them. And they hold on to that word always, and it sort of becomes this, you know, gives people permission to, Almost have a spiritual bypass because they think, well, I just have to work hard enough. If it hasn't materialized and I'm promised that it will, uh, then I must be doing something wrong. And, you know, the promises are beautiful and, um, you know, they, they have a place in recovery, but it's not a static state that you remain in. You know, it's, it's an experience like Bill's white light experience. You know, it's, transitory it's it's a moment in time it's you know but even even with the good stuff that we long for this too shall pass you know well and i think also um it's my
2: belief that a lot of what happens with the promises is it's it's the degree to which you're willing to let go too. you know and not try to control the outcomes of things and then Oftentimes there's multiple solutions to what's in front of you. And once you um, let go, you're able to see those and you're able to see how things can work themselves out um, without a lot
3: of effort on your part. Sometimes you just have to get out of the way. That's right. It's about discerning. When should I be putting one foot in front of the other and when should I be sitting tight, you know? And having some faith that it's going to work out. That's right. I don't have to relentlessly manage this thing that that I will I will intuitively know. I mean that's one of the promises. I will intuitively know how to handle things which used to baffle me. Right. Yeah.
2: And we'll be right back after this commercial.
0: Opinions, options,
1: answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This
2: is Mary Woods, your host today. Um, This is One Hour at a Time. And our guest is Dr. Ingrid Matthew, and we're talking about spirituality and um, how to achieve emotional sobriety in your spiritual practice. And um, we spent a good deal of time talking about spiritual bypasses or shortcuts that kind of get in our way spiritually. But um, as you you mentioned in your book, there are also, um, there's adaptive as well as maladaptive spiritual um, bypasses. So maybe we should spend some time
3: talking about the
2: adaptive ones.
3: That would be great. You know, that was actually one of the big surprises in my research, that I, I wasn't thinking about spiritual bypass as something that could actually be helpful. You know, I really went into my research thinking, I'm going to figure out how, you know, we can avoid spiritual bypass, and yet the irony there is that that was a, a bypass in and of itself. <laughs> I wasn't looking at the, the big picture of, of defense mechanisms, which is that, you know, they defend us for a reason, in that we might not be ready to see certain things or to feel certain things. And um, what I soon discovered in the research is that, you know, sometimes, particularly if we're looking at recovery from addiction, people need to believe that the program or their spiritual practice is going to relieve them from having to feel these horrible feelings that they've been, drinking or using over for their entire life and you know oftentimes i think it happens you know they refer to it even as the pink cloud right like there's this rosy experience in recovery where it's you know you're kind of waking up to life for the first time and you're sober and everything's fantastic and then the pink cloud ends and people realize i still have to deal with all of this stuff um But in terms of spiritual bypass being adaptive, I think sometimes that belief that you're not going to have to deal with it can give people a foundation of sobriety so that when the pink cloud does end and they do have to feel their feelings, they realize that they can do it without drinking or using because they say, you know, I never imagined that I could go this long without a drink or a drug and they're now committed to staying sober and then they can do the next layer of work, you know, the next level of, of development.
2: Um, I think that, you know, certainly in, um, my years in working in the addiction profession, spirituality has been kind of a cornerstone of recovery and of, of, um, education, psychoeducation. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, practice in, in treatment environments. And um, my experience in mental health and in working on in, in that side of the aisle, if you will, it's been um, spirituality has not been a very big part of um, treatment or the dialogue. And I'm wondering what your experience has been um, in psychology and with other psychologists. How welcoming are they of this whole concept
3: of spirituality and wellness? Well, you, you know, I intentionally went to a graduate school that uh, incorporated the, the spiritual, and it's why my master's degree is in transpersonal psychology. Uh, trans meaning beyond, so it sort of incorporates all of the traditional theories and, and you know, work in psychology, um, but it also includes not just spirituality, but, you know, the physical body and the somatic piece. So I've I've been very intentional about carving out a uh, holistic, uh, holistically oriented path for myself, and um, and it's certainly out there. But you're right; it's not mainstream. Um, You know, I think traditionally spirituality was not incorporated into mental health, and. Um, and there are certainly people that I work with that wouldn't consider themselves to be spiritual at all, and that's fine, too. Uh, you know, sometimes as a clinician, it's it's me who's holding the space, um, the, the holistic space, and it doesn't even have to be on my client's radar. Um, but I, I think that the trend is very slowly and perhaps subtly changing, that, you know, as people see the benefits of, of thinking things from more of a holistic lens. Um, people are becoming more and more open to it, which uh, I'm really happy to see.
2: Um, if you had uh, one piece of advice for our listeners, what
3: would you give them? Oh, the one piece of advice question. You know, um, <laughs> I just wrote uh, my, my my latest blog is called Permission to be Human and so that's what I'm really thinking about right now is, is give yourself permission to be human give yourself permission to feel joyous and and happy and enthusiastic but also you know a little disengaged or blue and and trust that it's all part of uh, a perfect picture you know that um, to be all inclusive both in your thinking about yourself and in your thinking about others to, to give other people permission to be human as well that's
2: great advice, and really it's the, it's the essence of spirituality, right? That's right, that's right. You know it's not striving for perfection. It's accepting who we are. Yes, that's right. Acceptance. Um, if people would like to contact you or they want to learn more about your research, um, what's the best way for them to do that?
3: Uh, You can find me on Facebook, Ingrid Matthew, and my last name is M-A-T-H-I-E-U. And I have an author page there that uh, I incorporate lots of things about emotional sobriety on a daily basis. I'm also on Twitter. And then I'm writing the blog for Psychology Today. uh, So on their website, uh, the blog is called Emotional Sobriety. You can find me and uh, email me there. And then, of course, you can find the book online. It's uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and the publisher is Hazelden. You can find it on their website, and uh, it should be in all major retailers starting this week. Um, Do you have uh, ideas for your next book? Not yet. Not yet. I'm open to seeing what unfolds. I'm sort of excited to see what ideas start percolating. I trust that they will. (laughs)
2: Um, and I'm assuming you enjoy writing because this is a very well read, well, well read, well written, and easy to read um, oh,
3: book. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yes, I, I, I'm pretty passionate about taking some of these concepts and principles and making them accessible. Uh, at, you know, my my real goal with the book is to give people this language in which they can talk about their own experience because. I think oftentimes we don't know what our own story is or what our own experience is until somebody else shares theirs. So I wanted to offer these stories. I wanted to offer the definitions to really create a dialogue so that we can all, you know, kind of move out of this wave of thinking that there's the right way to do it and I'm going to, you know, achieve every single happiness and and here's how to, okay, I'm still human, you know, there is a recession. There is suffering, and I'm still going to be spiritual.
2: Um, I think that that's such a it's such a gift for anybody who's willing to open themselves up to being spiritual or to to having faith. I think that um, it just makes life all the more richer. And mm-hmm. um, I would really recommend anyone who's interested in achieving emotional sobriety. Um, or uh really looking at spirituality from um a humanistic perspective is mm-hmm. to is to get your book and to read it and um to go on your blog because I've really enjoyed our dialogue and I could probably talk for another hour on this just because I think it's so important that um that we kind of demystify the whole concept of spirituality and that it's not about going to a guru and it's not about you know achieving the next new thing It's really about being able to accept yourself for who you are and your imperfections and, and then trying to do your best to go forward and, and to be open to the messages that the universe gives us and, um, you know, and treat each other with respect and have
3: integrity and, um, and be real. Mm, Well, that's a fantastic definition right there. Perhaps I'll borrow that one.
2: (laughs) Okay, you can have it. (laughs) You know, um, it's important to be real. Um, I, I just want to thank you for being our guest today, and for taking time out of your busy schedule, and for writing the book. It's it was it was a fun read, and it's um, and it's uh, it, there's a lot of food for thought here too.
3: Mm, I'm hoping so. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. I've really appreciated our our talk, and uh, it's been it's been great. Thank you. Well, you're,
2: you're totally welcome. I hope all of our listeners have a great week and that you um, spend some time being good to yourselves and thinking about um, how great it is to be human and to be real and to not be afraid of that. Um, so have a good week, everybody, and we'll be talking to you next week from San Diego. So uh, we'll talk to you in a week.